Hello, friends. I'm JP. And I'm Drew, and you're listening to the Broken But Beautiful podcast, where we talk about why church is still worth it. JP, it is good to be with you again, brother. We've got the tea going. We're at the dining room table. You know what has transformed my tea drinking is the dab of honey in the tea. Oh, yeah. That makes a big difference. It's a no-brainer. I don't know why it's taken me this long in life to realize it, but it's really been a difference maker for me this winter. I have a giant collection of little honey packets from Chick-fil-A that I keep in my (laughs) office that I supplement my tea with. You're right. It makes all the difference. That's unbelievable. I'm drinking the green tea here with a dab of honey. Chai tea over here for me. So, uh, JP, some people often ask me, why do you work for a church? Why do you stick around? And what benefit do you see from it? And that's really the whole aim of this podcast is trying to answer this question. And we've had a ton of people come on as visitors and interviews, and we've been hearing their side of the story. And they've all been great. We're grateful for people's experiences and all the emotion behind those. But here's one thing that we haven't really done with our podcast yet. We haven't presented actual research. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of groups of people that are out there doing this, which means that we don't have to do it ourselves, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we, we today want to talk about human mm-hmm. flourishing, human flourishing in a general sense, but it's also a, a project that's going on out of Harvard University. And they're presenting all sorts of statistics about what it means to flourish as human beings. Mm-hmm. And some of their research talks about the religious influence on human flourishing. And there's some really exciting stuff coming out. I mean, you pose that question when people ask us, why are we in ministry? What do we, what do we see is, is the point or the efficacy of what we're doing? I mean, a really religious answer is I believe in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and all that. But an answer I've started giving people, um, is I believe community works and I like forming communities. Yeah. Communities around the making of meaning. And I believe God is ultimate meaning. So it ends up going that direction. But we're seeing more and more social science that community works and it makes us better people. Well, communities and forming communities is just a natural part of what we do as human beings. We cluster up with people that Mm -hmm. we think like or that we act like or look like and it's just the it's the way that human civilization has always functioned we form communities around ways that we think are going to help us flourish yeah and unpacking that idea of human flourishing you can probably all think of a time in your life that you were just firing on all cylinders um no health issues job was going well, your relationships were going well, you felt a deep sense of meaning and purpose in your life. Just, it's that feeling you get when in the, in the summer or the spring, you roll the windows down, you've got your favorite coffee or sonic drink, and mm-hmm. you're driving down the road, and you're like, this is how life should be. <laughs> you know, and, and that, that's behind this idea of human flourishing. So the first time I started paying attention to these statistics was about 10 years ago, and I started teaching a course, um, at the university about healthcare and faith and how healthcare and spirituality interact. And I was exposed to the work of, uh, of Harold Koenig, who is at the Duke center for 
I think it's faith, spirituality, and health, something like that. And one of their findings was that people that frequently participate in religious community live about seven or eight years longer than Whoa. people that don't. Yeah, that's and a that, significant number. Yeah, that's like a stop the press type of thing. So it's like, you know, you probably heard the statistic, if you're, if you're a daily cigarette smoker, you need to stop because that's going to take seven or eight years away from your life. Yeah. So if you, if you quit, you're gaining that life back. And, and now you can say that about religious practice in, in a community, not private religious practice, but practicing faith in a community adds those years to your life. And I, I did a lot of reading on that topic. I got really interested and we have seen even more research come out. So there've been a bunch of articles recently from this group, the Human Flourishing Project at Harvard University. They've showed up in a lot of blogs and periodicals and articles that I follow. And the statistics are just, are really incredible, Drew, as we go through these. So they say, um, a number of large, well-designed research studies have found that religious service attendance is associated with greater longevity, so living longer, less depression, Less suicide, less smoking, less substance abuse, better cancer and cardiovascular disease survival, less divorce, greater social support, greater meaning in life, greater life satisfaction, more volunteering, and greater civic engagement. Whoa. That's, uh, there's a lot to unpack there, and that's exactly what our goal is today. Not to unpack all of it, but we're going to try to talk through some of these statistics and um, talk about... What, what are we finding in some of this research and what is it doing to support our thesis of this podcast that being a part of faith communities are a good thing? One major uh, thing is that uh, there's this conversation around deaths of despair, mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting terminology, uh, deaths of despair. And those are uh, things that are... Uh, deaths that occur and there are things like depression and mm -hmm. anxiety and other uh, mental health situations that are tied to those deaths. And there's some numbers here that point to uh, attendance in church is actually reducing those numbers of deaths of despair. Deaths of despair has become a big catchphrase the last five or six years, and it's this broad term that encompasses suicide, um, deaths resulting from drug addiction, uh, deaths resulting from alcoholism, and everything related to that. So everything under this idea of I'm experiencing despair in my life, and I cope with it in these ways. And we've seen a drastic rise in deaths of despair, specifically in urban areas. So if you ever follow something like um, the opioid crisis in urban, I mean, uh, rural areas, it's also in urban areas too, but you follow these stories and then you begin to read statistics like average lifespan is decreasing in the United States, even before COVID. And much of that research seemed to suggest this was because deaths of despair. Their research out of the Human Flourishing Project at Harvard is saying that if you compare people that regularly attend religious community, Okay, so this could be church, synagogue, mosque. It, they don't distinguish between Christian and other religions. But you're regularly attending, okay, several times a month versus people that never attend at all. These are the findings. Among women, 68% reduction in deaths of despair. Among men, 33% 
reduction in deaths of despair. And so they are finding that, you know, we have this huge social problem with rates of depression, suicide, alcoholism, drug addiction, um, all kinds of substance issues. And something's really going on here. And there's a stark difference between people that are frequently participating in religious community and those that aren't. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that uh, a part of this um, conversation is that uh, there there are all sorts of statistics about what church attendance and religious participation reduces, um, but it some of the general statistics, just kind of 30,000 feet view, is that people who attend services at least weekly are about 26% less likely to die of any particular cause mm-hmm. than those who attended less than weekly of any particular cause. Uh, <laughs> we're not talking just opioid or drug addiction mm-hmm. or alcoholism, things that are, you know, have other problems associated with them, but just in general, 26% less likely. And there's all sorts of things. And we just, we want to ask the question, why? Yeah. So what's going on here? So it's pages of statistics where, there seems to be a difference. So once again, this isn't between people that rarely go to church and people that go to church some. I mean, this is the distinction between those that regularly go to to religious communal gatherings versus those that don't go to all stark differences. So so what's going on here? So Drew and I were texting yesterday. We were talking some before we recorded this morning. The articles we've read associated with Harvard have been talking about what they think are all the reasons. Drew, what do you think those reasons are? Well, I think one um, is that we, okay, so I was teaching a class at my church this past Mm -hmm. Sunday, and we've been talking in this class about the different things that we long for in this world, and uh, one of those things is justice, Mm -hmm. and just to define justice, we're talking about just things being made right in the world. Yes. And... In this class, we've been talking about how the church is an active participant in things being made right in the world. So hopefully, most religious areas, particularly Christian churches, as Mm -hmm. we're talking about, hopefully these churches are participating in making things right in the world. And a lot of times, that really looks like most practically offering material support. Yes. So whether that's financial support or food or you know paying bills or just different things that the church can actively do with their resources and dollars because there are so many people that come to church and are in need of those Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. because they can't provide them for themselves and so when you can't provide those things for yourselves i can only imagine what that's going to cause within your heart and mind to go on things like we've talked about, anxiety, depression, all sorts of difficult circumstances that the church can come and provide answers to these things. Every church I've been at as an adult, once again, these are imperfect churches, and and they could have done these ways maybe more efficiently, maybe sometimes even more graciously, but every church I've been at as an adult helped the poor among us, right? helped pay mortgages when people lost jobs, helped pay for groceries when people were between work, gave people rides to the doctor, Mm, took people food when they were sick, helped them navigate health issues. I think about the church I'm at now the last few years, 
we've had a few folks with cancer and here's what happens at our church when somebody has a cancer diagnosis they talk to the nurses and doctors at our church frequently mm. they call my wife or stop by the house she's a cancer researcher they'll sit down they'll say this is what the doctors have told me this is the information they gave me they'll discuss the diagnosis um the women at the church encourage each other to get mammograms like it's a thing that is talked about because we're regularly praying like every week in our bulletin there's a column for people in cancer treatment. And so we regularly talk about things that reduce risk. We regularly talk about things that promote health around that area. We take people food when they're in cancer treatment. We help pay their health care bills. And once again, very imperfect church. But yeah, I think our folks are probably going to have better health outcomes because that's going on. I'm thinking of, and I can't remember if I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but our church has recently started participating in this ministry that's helping women transition out of prison and back into society. And these women are becoming regular attenders at our church and a part of our church. And I've heard multiple stories of people in our church who are taking these women to interviews for jobs, or they're taking them to apply for food stamps or they're taking them to meet with lawyers for, for for specific things and these women would not have that if they were not a part of our church mm-hmm. so i think uh, yeah, you and i have always said i can't imagine what people do yeah if they're in these difficult life circumstances and don't have a church around them the church can offer very practical mm-hmm. tangible things they can offer material support to people and it's just a really beautiful thing it's amazing and i think the second thing flowing out of that so it's not just material support but it's accountability support like it's the encouragement to to do better and and to flourish so we've learned a lot over the years from aa and na and the idea of how you can't make meaningful change you can rarely make meaningful changes in your life on your own you need social support. You need accountability. And so when people are trying to quit drinking or quit doing drugs, frequently they get involved with a regular group and they have much greater outcomes. One of the things I see on, on their list here from the Human Flourishing Group is regular religious attenders versus people that don't attend at all. There's a 50% reduction in divorce. And... That jives with what I've experienced my whole life as an adult in churches. So we frequently hear that 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. And I've never seen that in the churches that I've been a part of as an adult. It's been, Now, has there been divorce? Absolutely. But it's been somewhere. I sat down once and tried to, tried to do this statistic at a church I was at. I've seen it anywhere as low as is 10 to 12% to as high as 25% at a church I was at. But I've never at any church I've been as an adult seen a divorce rate that that was this 40 to 50% thing that you frequently hear. And once again, not trying to judge people that going through those very hard circumstances, but just saying what's going on here. I think there's an accountability aspect. I have a hard time believing that people want their marriages to fall apart. Yeah. And, a lot of people 
when their marriages are getting to that point where it's really starting to crumble and affect other aspects of their life, they need people to talk to. They need to talk to other people who have been through similar things. And that's the accountability that church offers because churches have those people mm-hmm. around and usually readily available to talk about those things. Yeah. Um, so there's an accountability that comes with being a part of church. And uh, I think a lot of times we can talk about accountability and talk about how painful mm-hmm. accountability is. Yeah. But accountability isn't always just like, you know, slaps on the wrist and telling you to buck up and do a, do your job better or, you know, you know, just figure it out on your own. But a lot of times accountability is I know you're capable of this. I want to see that happen and I'm going to walk with you through that. I think a lot of times this looks like so regular faith practice often encourages vulnerability. Right. And so it's saying, finally opening up to a close friend and saying, hey, my marriage is struggling. I'm having a hard time. And then being open to people saying, this is a book I read that was really helpful. This was a marriage counselor I saw that was really helpful. Yeah. My husband's doing this. My wife's doing this. And then being able to have friends of theirs that can go talk to them and console them when something hard has happened or when when they're not doing, when they're not acting the way they should in their marriage, someone can kind of gently say, Hey, you're better than that. We can talk a lot about kind of the hyper judgment and gossip that can happen in churches, but there is something to positive peer pressure drew. I'm not saying this is a minister, but just as a part of a church, like I don't want to let my friends down. There are things that I'm like, Man, I would not want to do that. And then, like, I know my church family would love me, but I know it would disappoint them so much if I did that. So I don't want to do that. Like, so we talk about negative peer pressure, but there's a positive peer pressure that happens in churches. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that accountability is also tied to moral teaching. Mm-hmm. And that moral teaching happens in churches again that's another reason why we think that humans flourish as a part of being a part of religious circles if you just think about big picture 10 commandments type of things right right? like don't lie don't steal honor your parents honor your parents don't covet like you look at that and you look at most civilizations all over the world even in other religions they've had these basic type of teachings and you think Will your life probably go better if you're not a liar and you tell the truth? Yeah. I mean, we can all point to exceptions, right, of people that have gotten ahead, but it looks incredibly stressful, like a house of cards for people that do. Will your life go better if you don't still? Yeah. Like, if your life go better if you commit to relationships and then stick with it? Yeah. So, basic religious moral teaching has been around for a long time, and one of the reasons it's held is... You, things are normally going to go better for you if you follow it. <laughs> how often and how often are you and I, even as ministers, needed to be reminded of certain moral pillars in life? Uh, just again, like you said, ten mm-hmm. minutes, just basic reminders of like, oh, 
uh, maybe I should have treated this person better this way. And maybe I should have talked to this person in this way mm -hmm. as opposed to gossiping about them or whatever. And that just creates better, healthier environments for our world. And I, I just, I, this phrase of, of human flourishing has really stuck with me since grad yeah. school. Mm -hmm. When I was in grad school, we were talking about culture making. Mm -hmm. And so we had to define what the word culture meant. And to me, that's when the phrase human flourishing really stuck in my mind. Because mm -hmm. when we were talking about culture, generally, we, we, we talk about culture as this general thing that's happening around us and the way that culture has influence on us. And what culture is doing is culture is telling us how do we flourish as humans. Yeah. And it's a two-way street. Yeah. It's not just that culture influences us, but we also influence culture. Sure. And so it's not just that the world is telling us how to flourish. We also have the responsibility to show the world how to flourish. And I think that's a, a, a really important thing and a lot of that is tied to moral teaching that we hear in churches i mean when i think about my life satisfaction and my happiness levels the thing drew that messes with my happiness level the most is when i covet mm -hmm. like when i see something else and i spend more time thinking about what i don't have than yeah. what i do have it's an expectations thing i start thinking well i want a house like that or i want a car like that or i want to go on vacations like that and I find myself spending a lot of time thinking about that. And then I realize like, oh, the last week of my life has not been joyful. I've not been happy because I was violating this clear moral teaching that's been around for thousands of years. It's like my daughters all had this part in their life where when they were super little and they would tell like a little lie. And it wasn't like arbitrary moral teaching. God is displeased as much as, listen, God wants best for you. And like, if you're a liar, no one will ever trust you. <laughs> and your life is just not going to go as well. And so I do think this consistent moral teaching that we see does lead to health outcomes. Another thing you mentioned before we recorded is a lot of health comes down to this idea of pausing and practicing reflection. What yeah. were you saying about that? Yeah, I w as you were just talking, as we were just talking about moral teaching and accountability and uh, realizing, you know, the material support we get, we don't understand just how meaningful that is and just how impactful that is on our lives unless we have some level of self-reflection. Mm -hmm. Like being presented with accountability and being presented with moral teaching and being blessed with certain things by certain people none of that is meaningful unless we're able to self-reflect and mm -hmm. able to look at our lives and say oh this is what i'm gaining from it and a lot of religious teaching teaches us to be self-reflective mm -hmm. about what is going on in our life and religious spaces uh, allow that to happen they're op they're open spaces for that self-reflection to happen and I, I think that's incredibly important for us to remember and reflect and to look at oh this is what's happening in my life 
faith invites us to spend time in quiet. You know, the basic spiritual practices are prayer, meditation, mm-hmm. fasting, Bible reading, the taking of communion. And these are the times in my life, not when I'm hanging out with my friends or watching ball games or whatever, but rather these spiritual practices are the time in my life when I'm quiet and I take stock and I just honestly look at my life. And Drew, these are the moments where I say, my life has been too busy and it's created stress and that's created anxiety and I can feel my heart rate has been up for a week because I overscheduled and that is not healthy for me to overschedule or I have not been eating well. <laughs> I've not been exercising. Like I think of these things when I'm in time of self-reflection. So my faith encourages me to self-reflect. And when I do that, I often realize there are things in my life that just aren't healthy. They're not going to lead to longevity in life. They're not going to lead to my human flourishing. And there's a corrective that takes place when I'm invited into that quiet. Yeah. Uh, I, I think of the times where I have felt most at peace in my life or the times where I've had intentional time carved out mm-hmm. to focus on that silence and to focus on that reflection. And there are are days and weeks and months of my life where I go without that. And then all of a sudden I'll realize, oh, I missed that time. Yeah. Like there's, there's absolutely the possibility that self reflection can become narcissistic Mm -hmm. or egocentric, but self reflection when done in a healthy way draws us to healthy change. Um, JP and I, before we, uh, started recording, we found through the human flourishing program, uh, at Harvard, if you get on their website, they have this metric that measures flourishing. And we were worried that like at the end, this would tell us you are either flourishing or you're not. I was hoping I would actually be more flourishing than you (laughs) is what I was hoping for. But that's not what this metric does. But what it does is it it asks you a bunch of questions. It says, you know, rate yourself on a scale of one to 10. And it says, okay, based on where you've fallen on this scale for this specific category, here are suggested activities. And uh, one of the categories is happiness and life satisfaction. And I won't tell you where I was on that scale, but but some of the uh, suggested activities from based on my results were, we suggest that you engage in a regular practice of gratitude. Mm. And to me, that's one of the lost arts of our culture. Yeah, it, It's the fact that we don't give thanks often enough for the things that we have. You know, I hear of people that, that say, I've got a journal by my bed, and every night before I go to bed, I write down 10 things that I'm grateful for in that day and how that's made all the difference in their life. And that kind of self-reflection, I think, is incredibly healthy to have different practices that point us back to that type of healthy self-reflection. I think that's great. So we see these we see these statistics that are jarring and they make us take note. And then we say, is there a causal effect here or is this just correlation? So we're trying to think of why is this the case? We talked about social support in the form of material services, social support in the form of accountability, this idea of self-reflection through worship, spiritual practices, teaching. I think the last big thing that contributes to this is the idea of meaning and purpose that comes 
through communal religious practice. And I keep using that word communal because if it's private, it doesn't have the same effects based on the research and the literature. But I think in my life, and I derive the highest forms of meaning and purpose come to me because of my faith. Right. I mean, have I found meaning and purpose at times in various roles? Like, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed a lot of roles in my life. I've enjoyed a lot of things I've done. But my highest meaning and purpose, the ultimate framing, if you will, of my life, comes because of my faith. Yeah. And people that have purpose and meaning are at lower risk of depression. And if you're at lower risk of depression, you're at a lower risk than the vices that we use to cope with depression, whether that be substance abuse or alcoholism or various things. So it leads to greater physical health when you have stronger life purpose. I think another part of that is that the longer you engage in this kind of community and benefit from this community, the more likely you are to pour back into it. And that itself gives you greater mm -hmm. meaning and purpose. It, it gives you more things to focus on that are not uh, self-centered or uh, maybe it pulls you out of what some of those unhealthy processes of self-reflection mm -hmm. self or self-analyzation could do. But it, by being a part of a community like that and you want to pour back into it, that itself is a noble and good thing which gives you meaning and purpose. Drew, we've both seen people that were older who had fought off so many illnesses, and you think, what's keeping them going? I think of a guy Absolutely. named... I think of a guy named Art Risley. Years ago at my first church, this elderly gentleman's very quiet, but his job at church was to take out the trash mm. and to help clean. And, and he had used to be the custodian because of his age. He wasn't the full-time custodian, but he would come by the church and he would load up garbage all the time. And he would kind of sit in the foyer with his arms across his chest and not in a watchdog sense, but he was just constantly waiting yeah. for something that needed to be moved, something that needed to be carried, something that needed to be attended to. And his role in our church gave him incredible meaning and purpose. And I'm convinced he lived years longer because even in his 80s, up into his mid-80s, his late 80s, he was like, that group of people needs me. And I have, I have meaning and purpose. And that kept him going. I think it got him out of bed every morning. Yeah, I, I can think of numerous people in our church who uh, were older and had their roles defined for them within our church. And then the pandemic happened mm. and we weren't meeting and, you know, things have shifted as a part of how our church functions mm -hmm. coming out of a pandemic and things like that. And they no longer have those roles and you can see them. This might be a hard word to use, but suffering mm -hmm. because of it. Uh, suffering to me is the opposite of flourishing mm -hmm. because they didn't have this meaning or purpose behind why they attend or, or what they do when they're in attendance and it's just been so hard to watch. So I think being a part of a community like that and having a role defined like that gives you something to look forward to. It gives you something meaningful to be a part of. And it just makes your participation in that kind of community that much more enjoyable. Yeah. I'm very moved by this research. I keep thinking, though, are there exceptions to this? So this research is saying 
you're going to be healthier if you participate in religious community. And Drew, someone like me can take this and say, hey, churches make you healthier. But I, I'm certain there are folks listening that say, I remember a time that <laughs> yeah. I was unhealthy in a church. So what might those exceptions be? Yeah. Um, as a part of this podcast, we never want to say that every church is perfect. Mm-hmm. Because, A, that's the nature of the church. It's a collection of imperfect human beings. But there are just churches that are toxic environments. And some of those toxic environments just... Every church is going to be different. We can't come up with an excuse for every individual church. But some of these toxic environments just keep people from flourishing. And that gre- I, I grieve that. Yeah. Oh, that hurts for me to hear. But there are just maybe certain leaderships in place, or maybe there are uh, people that are in specific churches that keep churches from allowing their mm-hmm. members to flourish. And, oh, that just hurts for me to hear. So I've, I've been with people when a church betrayed them. There was a secret told in confidence, and then people didn't keep the secret. And mm-hmm. so everybody knew something that they didn't want other people to know. Yeah. And so that led to great anxiety. That led to great shame to where that person just couldn't get out of bed on Sundays. I mean, it, it was really devastating for their emotional health and they, they had to find another, another church and they felt guilty about it, but it was negatively affecting their health. Like I remember seeing, hanging out with them one day and it looked like it was taking years off their life, the stress yeah. of it. I've seen folks go through church conflict, whether it was a full-blown church split or it was just a church arguing over, or I shouldn't say arguing, sometimes arguing, but sometimes just discerning a hard doctrinal point. And I'll see people, and then I'll see them years later. Andrew, it's like those pictures of the presidents on After inauguration a day. Term, yeah. yeah, and then when they leave office, you're like, you know, Bush, Obama, whoever it is, you're like, man, they look so much older now. But I've seen people in churches age before my eyes because of the stress of working through something hard. I've seen people who they will tell me, I remember years ago this woman said, I want to go to church so bad, but every time I drive up to a church, I will sit in the parking lot and my heart rate just goes up and I'll have a panic attack because I remember the gossip, the abuse, or whatever it was. I also think there's there's an incongruence that happens. So if someone's going to a church and what the church is saying is incongruent with their belief system, that takes a toll over time. So if the church is standing for something, that is not where you're at. Now, I want to say dispassionately as a Christian minister, I think we should submit, submit ourselves to the will of God. But I'm a realist enough that I know not everybody interprets the will of God the same way. And I know there are situations that if I sat in certain churches and heard what they were proclaiming, Drew, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, but it would cause me a ton of stress and anxiety. And I know on all kinds of different spectrums of all different issues, but I just, I just know people that say what was being preached was incongruent with, with what I believe. Therefore, it was an unhealthy thing for me to keep going. Yeah, this this church might say that, you know, we preach that we are to offer material support to each other. We preach that we are to offer accountability and moral teaching and meaning and purpose. 
that a church says that they uh, they might preach or advertise or declare that they're all about these things, but there might be some incongruence there that maybe they kind of do it or maybe they don't actually do it at all, but they just say they do. And that can be deeply harmful to people who are looking to that institution Mm -hmm. to provide and offer those things. And if that's been your experience as a listener, I'm sorry. That's, that just, that pains me to hear. It pains me because I know there are people that hear these statistics and it's salt in the wound because they're like, my church experience was unhealthy. It did not encourage me towards health. So, yeah. so we want to say we're sorry for what you've gone through and we want to empathize with you. Big picture, it appears based on the research that practicing faith in a religious community adds to our health, but it may not be everybody's individual experience. But we want to promote healthy churches because we think that leads to healthy things. So one of the things, Drew, I've talked to you a lot about this. If people stopped going to church in the early days of the pandemic mm-hmm. for health reasons. <laughs> so yeah. like the reason back in March of 2020, the reason we quit going to church, I know we did Zoom and podcasts and YouTube and all this stuff, Facebook Live, but like the reason we quit going to church was for our health. It was to promote health. But Drew, at some point, do we flip it and say, now, and for some people, this has already happened a year ago. For some people, it hadn't happened yet. But do we flip it at some point and say, you left church for health reasons, but now you now you need to come back for health reasons? Yeah, I think we're seeing that all across. Uh, I, I'll just say, I think we're seeing some of that within our own church. We're seeing people that are staying at home because they're being cautious. And I never want to demean a person for mm-hmm. being cautious and for protecting their own health. But we also want to say, we want you back. Yeah. We note that you are an important part of this body. You help me to flourish. Mm-hmm. And I want you around. I want you to be here a part of our community. Not forcing people to say, maybe you're wrong about this or you know that kind of thing but just saying i value you as a part of my community and i'm better off because you're here based on the teachings of the bible based on what we know from church history based on what we now know from social science our lives flourish best when we are in a community that loves us and supports us and is pointed towards the highest most true goals Andrew, as Christians, we believe that's the reality of God and the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus and the reality of the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. And we know that flourishing happens when we engage that. And so I think about the raising of my children. If I want them to flourish, well, I want them going to a good school. (laughs) (laughs) I want them with good friends, right? Um, I want to make sure they eat right. But I want them to have faith community um, as a believer, but also as just someone that reads the social science. I want them to have a faith community because I believe that's going to have better outcomes for them. Yeah. If JP and I can be of any support to you while you're trying to find that flourishing or you're trying to explore how to further flourish, we would love to talk to you. And I encourage you, put a spoonful of honey in your tea. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That sounds like flourishing to me. JP, good to be with you. Hey, talk to you soon, Drew.